Greetings, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, October the 11th, and I hope that you and yours are doing well. Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, looking at the book of Philippians, and we continue in that today, looking at Philippians chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 11. So listen as I read Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let me pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be holy, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen pride. All people have suffered from this mental deficiency literally since time began. The book of Genesis, in fact, records that it was through pride that the serpent was able to tempt the first human, female, Eve, to, to eat the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. Do we remember what he, he said to her? His exact words were, for God knows that, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. That's Genesis 3, 5. And we all, in, in our own way, all of us, have pridefully been trying to be like God, to take his rightful place in our lives ever since. Each of us have been the inmates in the same asylum, so to speak. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis refers to pride as the one vice of which no man in the world is free which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else and of which hardly anyone except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. He, he also says that pride is the utmost evil. Anger, greed, drunkenness, and, and all other sins are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil, and it is through pride that every other sin comes. Pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. And pride is a horrible thing, for it is completely anti-God state of mind. You see, pride puts us on the throne of our daily existence instead of God. It is the ultimate Messiah complex. Well, how do we recognize pride in ourselves? I mean, how can we spot this mental illness in order to treat it? Well, first of all, we must realize that pride can and does take several forms. The first form of pride is simple. It's, it's vanity. And vanity basically involves an unhealthy preoccupation with our appearance or our image. If, 
if we work out at a gym where there are mirrors on the wall and, and we watch our reflection as we work out, well, that could be a symptom of this problem. Another indication of this version of pride is seen when we take new pictures on our smartphone with our friends and we pretend we're looking at the other people in the picture while secretly looking only at ourselves. Vanity is a subtle form of pride. We perhaps heard of the, the one about a, a young woman who went to confession at the Catholic church and she, she told the priest, I want to confess my sin. And the priest asked, what is your sin, my child? And she replied, it is the sin of pride. Every morning I look at myself in the mirror and realize how beautiful I am. The priest responded, that's, that's not pride, that's a mistake. Well, it is a mistake to be that preoccupied with our appearance. Vanity is the most common form of pride. It can be irritating and silly, but fortunately, it is not the most dangerous. A more serious form of pride is stubbornness. Stubbornness is the, that variety of pride that causes us to shun correction. It leaves us unable to stop defending ourselves because we delude ourselves into thinking that we are incapable of error. We are above wrong. And when someone points out one of our flaws, we, we evade or deny or blame someone else. Proverbs 29.1 refers to this form of pride when it says, one who is often reproved yet remains stubborn will suddenly be broken beyond healing. And as this text infers, stubbornness is a mental disorder that is particularly difficult to treat because I can't be cured of a problem unless I am humble enough to be able to see my own faults. And stubborn people stubbornly believe they have no faults. They think they are above reproach and get defensive when people try to correct them. A third form of pride is what we might call comparison. And this is where we can see a difference between the sin of greed and the sin of pride. You see, greedy people get pleasure out of having things, whereas prideful people don't care how much they have just so long as they have more than other people. C.S. Lewis writes, They are not proud of being rich or clever or good-looking. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. There's a story about three dogs. Two purebred dogs were walking daintily across the street, their noses held high in the air. Along came a big alley dog, the, you know, the, the mutt, the Heinz 57 kind of dog. Embarrassed at being in the company of such a mutt, one of the purebreds said, We must go. My name is Miji, spelled M-I-J-I. The other blue blood said, well, my name is Mickey, spelled M-I-K-I. The low-class mutt then put his nose up in the air and said, well, my name is Fido, spelled P-H-Y-D-E-A-U-X. Jesus referred to this version of pride when he told a story about two men at prayer, a tax collector and a Pharisee. The sins of the tax collector, well, they were obvious to all, greed dishonesty, dishonesty, corruption. And the Pharisee thanked God that he was in a different category. He saw himself as better than the tax collector next to him. Do we remember his pridefully contempt comparative prayer, Luke 18? I, I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. <clears throat> 
in his condition, he didn't care about his own sinful state, just that by comparison, he was less sinful than the tax collector. People who suffer from this form of pride spend all their time pointing the finger of blame at others, thinking that it somehow makes them look better to God. If they can find people who are more sinful than they are, they mistakenly believe that God grades on the curve, you see, when we know that he only grades on the cross. And this leads to the fourth and maybe the most serious form of pride, which is exclusion. You see, at the deepest level, pride is the choice to exclude both God and other people from their rightful place in our hearts. Jesus said that the essence of a godly lifestyle is to love God and to love people. And extreme pride destroys our capacity to love either. Pride leads us to love only self. The greedy and the gluttonous may still be capable of at least a certain kind of love, but pride is a form of anti-love because it moves us to exclude instead of to embrace. It leads us to judge rather than to serve, to bow down before a mirror rather than before God. C.S. Lewis writes, A proud person is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Now, can we see how serious pride can be, how much a Messiah complex can harm us and others? No wonder Isaac Watts wrote the lyrics in his famous hymn and said, When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. The sad thing about our culture is instead of holding pride and contempt, well, we tend to celebrate it. According to some sociologists, our society is the culture of narcissism. We live in a me-first society. It's very difficult to make people understand, much less embrace the mindset of Jesus' words and Luke 9, 23, when he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. We live in the day of self-promotion, defending our own rights, taking care of ourselves first, winning by intimidation, pushing for first place and a dozen other self-serving agendas. Even we believers, especially those who, who strive to grow spiritually, struggle with pride. I struggle with pride. For the more we attempt to be like Jesus, the more easily it is to be critical of those who don't make the attempt. It's like going on a diet. I, I, I don't know about you, but when I'm, when I'm on one or thinking about one and when I'm trying to eat healthily, I, I, I find certain thoughts involuntarily almost running through my mind. If I'm in a, if I'm in a restaurant or waiting to, to take out food from a place, I, I, look at, I look at the plates of others piled high, you know, with all the things that I now shouldn't eat or know I can't eat. And, and I wonder, how can people eat that stuff? They, they have no discipline, no self-restraint, no control. Are these the people Paul was speaking of in Philippians 3.19 when he wrote, their end is destruction, their God is the belly? Now, I think this way because these people are eating the same things I ate before my diet, which began about 15 seconds ago. And when I give up on my diet, I'll be eating those things again. You see, the problem is when I try to do something good, I am aware of it. 
And at the same time, I tend to be very aware of other people who aren't putting forth the same effort. I tend to think that they should. I start to compare my effort with their lack their or with their lack thereof. And the result is pride, judgmentalism, and a lack of love on my part. John Ortberg writes, one of the hardest things in the world is to stop being the prodigal son without turning into the elder brother. And this is a problem that apparently plagued the Christians in Philippi as well, because pride was threatening to destroy their unity. Epaphroditus, one of Paul's fellow workers and a member of the church at Philippi, had brought word that the fellowship of the church was being threatened by the proud the proud, self-centered spirit of some of the Philippian believers. In chapter 4, verse 3, Paul specifically addresses this situation by writing and pleading with Eudea and Sintichi to, to get down on their high horses, get down off their high horses, and get along. <clears throat> and in verses 1 through 4 of today, uh, today's text, Paul appeals to all the members of this church to work together to solve this problem. Note that he repeatedly uses the phrase, if there is such and such and such and such. But the context shows us that what he really means is since there is such and such and such and such, since there is comfort from Christ's love, since there is fellowship with the Spirit, since there is tenderness and compassion, then I beg you, make my joy complete by being one in spirit and purpose. <clears throat> And to me, it's almost as if Paul is saying, you guys have a mental problem here. Get some treatment. See a counselor because you aren't thinking like a sane believer should think. In fact, he goes on to actually prescribe some treatment by pride, for pride by reminding the Philippians of the antidote, which is the opposite of pride, humility. And then he points to the universe's best example of humility, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, this is the way your mind should operate. Some versions actually translate verse 5 to say, let this mind be in you. So in essence, Paul is saying, follow Jesus' example. Think like he does. And Jesus is the best example of humility. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, the Lord used this mindset to describe himself when he said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in the heart. Well, Paul goes on to cite three characteristics of a humble person, and he follows that up by reminding the Philippians and us, you and I, that Jesus embraced each of these qualities. First of all, Paul reminds us that a humble person is someone who thinks of others before he thinks of himself. In verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. In other words, be selfless rather than selfish in our way of thinking. It, it was Andrew Murray who said the humble person is not the one who thinks merely meanly of himself. He simply does not think of himself at all. This is not to say that a humble person is someone who does not have healthy self-esteem. Humility is, is not about convincing ourselves or others that we are unattractive or incompetent. It's not about beating ourselves up or trying to make ourselves nothing. Humility has to do with a submitted willingness, a healthy forgetfulness. Paul is saying that our goal should be to become so interested in others and in helping them reach their highest good that we become self-forgetful in the process. So 
If we are humble individuals, then when we are with others, we are truly with them, not wondering how they can be a benefit to us. When a husband is humble, he submits his own wants and desires to meet the needs of his wife and his family. When an athlete is humble, it is the team that matters, not winning the top individual honors. When, when the Christian believer is humble, he or she thinks of others before self. And so pride is given no place to operate. In short, a humble person is someone who is in no way conceited, someone who thinks more of others than they do of themselves. President Ulysses S. Grant, pre-social media, was once on a, the way to a reception in his honor, and he was called in, in a rain shower and ended up sharing his umbrella with a, with a stranger who was going to the reception as well. And the stranger said to Grant, I've never seen President Grant, and I merely go to satisfy a personal curiosity between you and me. I have always thought that Grant was very much overrated as a man. Grant replied, that's my view also. And his same view should characterize the life of every believer, for thinking less of ourselves and more of Christ and others is the essence of humility. And in our text, Paul reminds us that Jesus is the perfect example of this characteristic of humility. As we look at verses 6 through, six through 7, referring to Jesus, we, we, we look at this Messiah poem which is center and, and the central point to the whole book of Philippians that is surrounded by these vignettes and these stories of Paul's life and the life of the church. Uh, we'll see as we progress through the book of stories of others, but it all comes back to this. This is the heart of the matter. As we look at verses 6 through 7, Paul writes, "...who being in very nature God did not consider or think of equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant." So do, do I see that? Do I see that Jesus selflessly left the halls of heaven to come here because he knew that doing so would benefit us? The Son of God rated you and I and all of humanity higher than he did himself. And Paul reminds us here that humble people follow Jesus's example. They think of the needs of others more than they think of their own. C.S. Lewis writes, whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. The second characteristic of a humble person is sacrificial servanthood. In other words, a humble person doesn't just consider others better than himself. He puts his way of thinking into action. This is what Paul was referring to in verse four, when he said, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. As it says in Galatians six, we are to carry each other's burdens and in this way, fulfill the law of Christ. When we live in this way, we are again following the example of Jesus for throughout his life, God in the flesh served others instead of the other way around. He healed the sick, fed the hungry, washed the dirty feet of his followers. And then in verse eight says, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So let's look closely at verse six at the word being who being in very nature. God did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Many Bible 
versions translate it as a um, as a concessive wording and like this it's who although or in spite of the fact that he was in nature God poured himself out taking the form of a servant and from a human standpoint this wording makes perfect sense Jesus became a sacrificial servant in spite of the fact that he was God but translating it in this way misses the essential point that Paul is making here perhaps a better understanding of the Greek translate this this little verb as the cause of Christ's actions and should be worked this way. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who precisely because he was in nature, God did not consider equality with God to be grounds for grasping, but poured himself out, taking the very nature of a servant. You see, Jesus did not take on the outward form of a servant, He was not disguising who God is and coming to earth to live and die for us. He was revealing who God is. He was showing us that it is God's nature to act in love toward mankind. Jesus did not come as a servant in spite of the fact that he is God. He came precisely because of the fact that he is God. You see, God is a self-sacrificing being. And if we are believers with a healthy mindset, we will follow his example and humbly give of ourselves to meet the needs of others, no matter how costly it is to do so. And then thirdly, And lastly, the third characteristic of a humble person is that Paul mentions here, it is their desire to glorify God instead of self. In this passage, Paul reminds the Philippians that everything Jesus did was for God's glory. And verses 9 through 11 say that the the reason Jesus took on human flesh and was nailed to the cross, raised from the dead, and exalted, exalted to the Father's right hand, and given the name above every name was for the glory of God the Father. So when a godly individual serves others, they do so not so that men will glorify them, but so that men will glorify God. And Jesus told us that we should think and live in this way. Remember his command in Matthew 5. He said, let your light shine before men that they may be they may see your good works and praise your father in heaven. So as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we must do it all not for the glory of self, but for the glory of God. Jonathan Edwards once wrote in his journal, resolved that all men should live for the glory of God. Resolved second, that whatever others do or not, I will. That is humility. Resolving to live every moment of every day in such a way that Jesus, that God, are praised. As we close our time today, I want to read from Jude, the Dexology. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Until we're together again, may God hold us all in the hollow of his hand.